When we think of the Miami Hurricanes that Jimmy Johnson coached for five seasons in the 1980s, we think of swagger, of brashness, cockiness, everything that came to be known as the U. That pretty much describes how South Beach led the worlds of fashion and entertainment in that era too, especially the South Beach characterized on Miami Vice, an hour-long weekly series on NBC about a pair of detectives who captured bad guys while remaining cool, sexy, and largely wrinkle-free. Swagger is momentary. Swagger is fashion. Fashions come and go, and Miami Vice came and went. You don't see a lot of people wearing baggy pastel suits over t-shirts these days. In a lot of ways, what we think of when we think of the U feels like history too. Put it this way, the 18-year-olds enrolling as freshmen this fall were born the last year that the Hurricanes won a national championship. But there is one change that Jimmy Johnson made at Miami that lives on. The chief catalyst in pushing his teams to win 44 games in four seasons. Johnson emphasized speed over strength, a reliance on athleticism that spelled the end of the option, the attack that had dominated the game for nearly two decades. His teams attacked upfield on defense. His teams attacked downfield on offense. Johnson's Miami teams dominated nearly everyone in their path. The Canes were the first breakout success of the three big programs in the state of Florida, alongside Florida State and Florida. Those teams would take turns atop the sport for the next 25 years. Not only that, Johnson's pivot to speed and athleticism presaged the spread-the-field mentality that is the modern staple of the game in one very important way. We are seeing more players of more sizes performing more remarkable feats than ever before. That trend had its roots in the U. Welcome to Down and Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. Today's episode is Jimmy Johnson and the House of Speed. In it, we will explore how Johnson and the Miami Hurricanes dominated not only college football in the 80s, it changed how the game would be played in the years to come. Throughout the history of college football, you know that every great moment has come from teams combining tireless preparation and hard work. Same for your business. From hotel chains to airlines, universities to healthcare facilities, retailers to local auto mechanics, more than one million businesses trust CentOS to help them open their doors with confidence and get ready for the workday. College football has always been rooted in tradition. For example, the uniforms, the maize and blue, the crimson and cream. CentOS has apparel programs to help your employees convey the right image, leading your business to the promised land. Great teams keep their goals top of mind. They don't waste time with distractions. It's your business, Focus on what you do best and leave the rest to CentOS. Get CentOS and get ready for the workday. Learn how CentOS can help get your business ready at CentOS.com. Johnson arrived at Miami in 1984 as a 40-year-old coach who had spent nearly his entire football career in the Southwest. Yet Johnson and the city of Miami became a seamless match. 
They've gone into South Bend, they've gone into Norman, Oklahoma, they've gone to Gainesville, Tallahassee, on and on, and they've won every time. Uh, they really play hard, and uh, they've got a, I tell you what, it's a fine football team. Sometimes, an idea comes along that is a perfect combination of time and place. If you want to argue that the revolution started at Miami before Jimmy Johnson arrived, go ahead. It's an easy argument to make. In 1983, the year before Johnson got there, Howard Schnellenberger led the Canes to the national title. That was the first of the five national championships that Miami won from 1983 to 2001. But in my mind, for all that Schnellenberger did, he didn't make the same impact that Johnson made at Miami. Schnellenberger didn't stick around long enough to do anything beyond claim that first title. It's true that Johnson also won only one title and, like Schnellenberger, coached at Miami for only five seasons. But Johnson reset the rules about how to succeed in college football, rules that remain in place today. Nothing about Jimmy Johnson's arrival at Miami suggested that he would foment a revolution in the sport. A guy from Port Arthur, Texas, went to high school with rocker Janis Joplin, played on the undefeated 1964 Arkansas team with Barry Switzer and Jerry Jones. Nothing in Johnson's background suggested the hip vibe of South Beach. Yet when Johnson arrived in Miami, he felt at home immediately. He came to Miami from Oklahoma State, where he had been a winning, if not entirely successful, coach. I mean, he had won games at Oklahoma State, but he hadn't won anything. Johnson had a record of 30-25-3 in five seasons. He had taken over a program hobbled by NCAA sanctions, and he was a first-time head coach in a Big 8 conference in which his biggest rival, Oklahoma, won early and often. The only Big 8 team to challenge Oklahoma, Tom Osborne's Nebraska Cornhuskers, proved just as tough. Both Switzer and Osborne still emphasize option football as they had in the 1970s when the wishbone was king. The Big 8, the ancestral home of the Big 12, by the way, was occasionally known as the Big 2 and Little 6. Johnson's Oklahoma State was one of the Little 6. Oklahoma and Nebraska didn't leave much oxygen for any other programs. But Switzer and Johnson were buddies. They had played together at Arkansas in the early 1960s and coached together as assistants at Oklahoma. When Johnson was offered the job at Oklahoma State, he called Switzer for advice. Switzer told him to take it. But I'm warning you, Switzer said, I'm going to beat your ass every single year. Which he did. Johnson made the cowpokes the best of everyone in the Big 8 who wasn't Oklahoma or Nebraska. By 1983, Johnson's fifth season, they went 8-4. Oak State led Oklahoma 20-3, but lost. They pushed number one Nebraska hard before losing 14 to 10. Johnson had grown as a coach. But the next great coach? Did anyone see that? It would be easy to say that Sam Jankovic, the Miami athletic director, saw it. He hired him. But Jankovic didn't make a beeline to Stillwater. Jankovic talked to a half dozen or so coaches. One of the guys he interviewed was another young head coach in the state of Oklahoma, John Cooper of Tulsa, who went on to a Hall of Fame career at Arizona State and Ohio State. 
In Jankovic's defense, he had been told that Johnson was ungettable. But fate brought the two men together. More accurately, an elevator did. Jankovic ran into Johnson at the elevator bank of the Hyatt Regency in downtown Dallas. The College Football Association met there every spring. In those days, the CFA served as a lobbying group for the major football schools within the NCAA. Johnson and Jankovic said hello and chit-chatted. Johnson knew that Miami needed a coach. Johnson's predecessor, Schnellenberger, the architect of the Hurricanes' improbable rise to number one the previous season, bugged out of Miami on Memorial Day weekend to take a job as a head coach in the USFL, the United States Football League, one in a series of pro leagues that have tried and failed to play football in the spring. A June vacancy stands out in a way that a postseason vacancy wouldn't. So when they saw one another at the elevator, Johnson said, Sam, I wouldn't mind living on the beach myself. Jankovic, eyebrows no doubt raised, said, You wouldn't. Let's get together in 15 minutes. In a matter of days, Johnson had taken over the Hurricanes. In that first season, it looked and felt as if he were leading someone else's program. Not only did he have Schnellenberger's players, he had Schnellenberger's assistants, three of whom had applied for the head coaching job and hadn't gotten it. It was a tense season. The Hurricanes finished 8-5 and five with three straight two-point losses to end the year. In one of them, Miami blew a 31-0 halftime lead against Maryland. In another, the Canes fell to Boston College when Eagles quarterback Doug Flutie threw one of the most famous Hail Marys in the history of the game. But after the season, Johnson made sure he made the Miami program his. He brought in three new assistants, and he flipped the schemes to play his brand of football. In the next four seasons, the Hurricanes went 44-4. They won one national championship and lost two others by a total of five points. How did he do it? Johnson emphasized speed. Speed, speed, and more speed. Even if he had to sacrifice size, Johnson wanted guys who could run. Throughout its history, college football has been a battle of strength and speed. In its earliest years, before the forward pass forced teams to play on the entire field, strength dominated. As the game refined its offensive rules, speed and quickness came more into play. As late as the 1960s, Bear Bryant won with what he called his little quick guys. In that era of one-platoon football, when players played offense and defense, Alabama averaged fewer than 200 pounds per man. By the end of the 1971 season, however, Bryant noticed in the Orange Bowl National Championship game that his little quick guys got mauled by Nebraska's bigger quick guys. Not to mention that the rise of the wishbone and other forms of option football in the late 1960s and 70s emphasized strength and power. Speed had a role in the option, of course, but make no mistake, the option depended on power too. Switzer used to brag about how little the Sooners passed the football. When he had been Oklahoma's offensive coordinator, the Sooners once gained 516 yards against USC. USC! by running the ball 72 times and throwing once. And that one throw was an incompletion. 
To combat the option, defenses got bigger. You needed big corners and safeties who could take on the USC's student body right sweep, who could disrupt the Oklahoma wishbone option pitch as the offense tried to turn the corner and move upfield. Take the 1980 All-America team. The safeties, Kenny Easley of UCLA and Ronnie Lott of USC, both stood at least 6'2 and weighed at least 200 pounds. Granted, Easley and Lott are both members of the college and pro football halls of fame. They were really good, but their size wasn't unusual. Johnson wanted size too. He just didn't want it first. He wanted speed and he had come to the right place. When Johnson's predecessor, Howard Schnellenberger, took over at Miami, he had famously said that he wanted to build a fence around Miami. Johnson looked at the wealth of high school talent in the Miami area and throughout the state of Florida, and he saw what he loved, size and speed, but not in that order. Here's Jimmy. I think, you know, as far as me wanting fast players, quick players, obviously you want the big fast players, but sometimes you got to make a choice. And speed was always so important. Johnson had a couple of big, fast players. Jerome Brown, as we will see, set a new standard on the defensive line at 6'2", 285 pounds. Benny Blades, a 6-foot, 207-pound safety, ran so fast he was invited to the 1984 Olympic trials in the 400. But when Johnson had to make a choice, he believed his fast defenders could outmaneuver the big men in the option offenses. He believed his passing offense would dominate the big defenses built to stop the running game. It's almost as if he carried the torch of Bryant's philosophy of speed first. Allow me to make a quick point here, because those of you who know Bryant's career know that he never believed in a single offensive philosophy. Over the course of his four decades as a head coach, Bryant threw the ball, he ran the ball, he used the T formation, he used the I formation, and as an early adopter of the wishbone, he won three national championships in the 70s. Bryant said, formations don't make players, players make formations. In choosing speed first, Johnson is, as I said, essentially carrying Bryant's torch. And there is a connection between Johnson and Bryant. Johnson played high school football for a guy named Buckshot Underwood, whose name, if nothing else, belongs in the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Actually, Buckshot's career as a high school coach earned him the Hall of Fame honor. Buckshot Underwood served in the Navy with Bryant during World War II and coached for him at Kentucky afterward. Buckshot believed in speed everywhere on the field. Johnson, the second fastest player on the team, played on the line. Johnson believed in speed because that's what had gotten him that football scholarship to Arkansas. He learned at an early age what speed could do. When he became a head coach, he recruited speed. Like Bryant, Johnson believed speed would be more effective than size over the entirety of a 60-minute game. Here's what Jimmy said. I did that at Oklahoma State and at the University of Miami. That's what I recruited. You know, I didn't want the big 260-pound linebacker. I wanted the 195, 200-pounder that could run like a deer. 
the guy, guy that can run, and I've told players this time and time again, I said, if you can run and you're in great condition, that fourth quarter, you're still running. You know, in the fourth quarter, that 260-pounder, he's starting to slow up a little bit. And so I wanted speed on our football team. For instance, Johnson's defensive ends at Miami in 1986 averaged only 243 pounds. He embraced a five-foot-nine wide receiver named Brett Perriman. He signed a linebacker from Dallas named Jesse Armstead, who might have weighed 200 pounds. Perriman and Armstead went on to long careers in the NFL. Among Johnson's second class of recruits, the 20 players who signed with Miami in February 1986, 18 of them weighed less than 250 pounds. Granted, players are bigger now, but in that same year, 1986, Alabama signed nine players who weighed more than 250. Florida State signed five. Miami signed only two. There are a couple of other points to make about Johnson and the players he wanted. The schemes he used emphasized their speed. His players played faster. As they sped up the game, they forced their opponents to play faster, often faster than they were able. Not just physically able, but mentally too. In 1986, Johnson said, Our style is to cause turnovers, sacks, fumbles. It is psychological as much as anything. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove. Knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why, after 130 years... Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit Carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. The best way to demonstrate the difference in Johnson's philosophy at Miami and how it came to dominate college football is to look at Miami's three consecutive victories over Oklahoma. The Canes played the Sooners in 1985, 1986, and 1987 and won each game handily by 12, 13, and 6 points, respectively. Barry Switzer had coached Oklahoma for a decade. He had won two national championships in the 70s. In the mid-80s, still using the wishbone attack, Oklahoma contended for the national title in four consecutive seasons. The Sooners held the flag that Jimmy Johnson wanted to capture. The year before the series, 1984, the Sooners nearly won the national title. They did win it in 1985, albeit with one loss, and they also lost only one game in 1986. Both those losses, their only losses in those two seasons, were to Miami. In his autobiography, Bootlegger's Boy, Switzer entitled the chapter, Oh, But for Miami. 
Miami was dominant in a 27-14 upset at number one Oklahoma in 1985, but the result of that game turned on one play. Jerome Brown, a guy who was big and fast, chased Sooner quarterback Troy Aikman to the sideline and tackled him. He got pinched between 230-pound John McVeigh and 270-65-pound Jerome Brown. That's no fun. Aikman's ankle did not survive the tackle in one piece. Now, don't worry about Aikman. His ankle healed up and he transferred to UCLA, where he passed the ball in an offense that didn't run all the time. More about him later. Anyway, all the Sooners had behind Aikman was an ill-prepared freshman quarterback, Jamel Holloway. From California, outstanding in high school, was a wishbone quarterback in high school. Holloway learned enough that he led Oklahoma to the national championship. But in that game, against a defense that had the speed to neutralize his unschooled talent, Oklahoma had little chance. Second down, call it a five-yard pickup for Holloway. Rolls back to throw and gets his pass off. He has a man, and it is late getting there, and it is almost intercepted by Benny Blade. The freshman just not having the time and not enough practice is a little late with the ball. Should have already set up and thrown. One of the great hidden benefits of using the option offense, as Switzer did for so many years, was that the methodical marches downfield chewed up the clock and kept the opposing offense off the field. It's hard to score if your offense is on the bench. But the Hurricanes defense continually got the ball back for Miami and its young quarterback, a talented passer named Vinny Testaverde. Back goes Testaverde to throw. Has some time, has some open field, gets it away. Pass is good to Urban. He sees the game as his opportunity to show what he could do. The key was Testaverde's scramble, concentrating downfield and finding the open receiver. Testaverde threw for 270 yards against a team that had allowed 121 yards of total offense, running and passing, per game. After the game, Johnson said, Oklahoma has a good defense against running, but they had not faced the kind of team we have. This is certainly no surprise to me. The next year, the rematch, with both teams preparing for it all year, carried no elements of surprise. Oklahoma came in as number one again, but this time, Miami was number two, and the Canes were at home. This game didn't turn on one play. It never turned at all. The game started out in Miami's direction, and it never changed. The Hurricanes won 28-16. Testaverde, en route to the Heisman Trophy, threw for all four Miami touchdowns. What did Switzer talk about after the game? Testaverde's arm? No, his feet, his ability to move as a six-foot-five quarterback. And the Miami defense established itself against the Sooners' option game again. The fullback running up the middle is one of the basic weapons of the wishbone offense. Oklahoma fullback Greg Carr averaged five yards per carry coming into the game. Against Miami, he rushed for six yards total. Two decades after the game, the Daily Oklahoma newspaper published a piece looking back at the Miami-Oklahoma series. Benny Blades, the Miami safety who was big and fast, is now in the College Football Hall of Fame. He told the Oklahoman that the Canes' defensive speed, combined with discipline, shut down the wishbone. 
We just basically built a line at eight yards and with the speed we had on defense, took away the first two options, Blade said. Remember, the wishbone also was known as the triple option. The quarterback could give the ball to the fullback, give it to the halfback, or keep it himself. If a defense reacts so quickly that the quarterback must keep the ball, that is going to be one sore quarterback. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash CFB. That's linkedin.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. The Hurricanes swept through the 1986 regular season with an undefeated record, only to be upset in the Fiesta Bowl by Penn State. They went undefeated and won the national championship in 1987, closing it out with a victory in the Orange Bowl against, you guessed it, Oklahoma. The Sooners scored a late touchdown on a trick play to make the final score 20-14, closer than the game really was. After the game, his third loss in as many seasons to Miami, Switzer had answered the obvious question with an obvious response. No, I don't want to play them again. I never want to play them. And he never did. The year after that, in 1988, Miami lost only one game by one point at Notre Dame which went undefeated and went on to win it all. Johnson left Miami a couple of months after the season, lured to the Dallas Cowboys by their new owner, Johnson's old Arkansas teammate, Jerry Jones. The same year that Johnson left Miami, Switzer got pushed out at Oklahoma. Nebraska quickly took control of the Big 8. In fact, Johnson coached his last game at Miami in the Orange Bowl against the Huskers and dominated them even worse than he had the Sooners. Three years later, after the 1991 season, Nebraska got outclassed again in the Orange Bowl by a Miami team on its way to another national championship. So Huskers coach Tom Osborne changed his defensive scheme to become more like Miami. Osborne put faster players on the field, especially on defense. The effect was immediate. In 1993, Nebraska nearly won the national championship. The Huskers then finished number one in three of the next four seasons. The first one, in 1994, came in the Orange Bowl, where the Huskers gained a measure of revenge by defeating Miami 24-17. Jimmy Johnson by then had become the first coach to win a national championship and a Super Bowl. In fact, he won consecutive Super Bowls with a quarterback he drafted from UCLA by the name of Troy Aikman. His ankle was just fine. Anyway, national championship or Super Bowl, Johnson has never hesitated to say which he enjoyed more. 
I, I used to say the most fun time in my life when I was at University of Miami and coaching there, and we won so many games, that's why it was fun. In college football, especially in college football, imitation is the sincerest form of coaching. When the powerhouses succeed with a new wrinkle, everyone else tries to use that wrinkle. Defenses got faster, offenses went to the up-tempo spread, and the game is way, way different than it was played in the 1980s. The fact is, the renewal and emphasis on speed and athleticism has allowed more players to shine. The use of up-tempo spread offenses and the run-pass option has given us outstanding quarterbacks like Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. Both of them won the Heisman Trophy. Both of them were selected as the first pick in the NFL draft, and neither of them is six feet tall. Jimmy Johnson is 76 years old. He coached his last game of any kind 20 years ago. Johnson never coached the run-pass option. His offenses never spread the field the way that offenses do today. And yet, the change he instituted at Miami lives on among the best teams in college football. For Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Mazel. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150 commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down and Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper and Gabe Bassane. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our next episode, I'll tell you the story of a redshirt freshman who electrified the sport and changed the face of the game forever. Michael Vick makes a miracle happen in Morgantown. Michael Vick, a three-play guy, on the next Down and Distance. <laughs>